Mate, this is going to be awesome. It's not stayed to come down for that one. Hit him, hit him. It's more than just a hobby, it's who we are. Cracker. That's why we hunt. Welcome to the Educated Hunter Podcast. I'm here with Sean Olmstead, and uh, we're going to have a conversation about a couple of things. I want to talk about hunting and outfitting and your experiences up to this point. I mean, you've been in it for how long now? Pretty well my whole life. I, mean, yeah. I was 12 years old when I started wrangling. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, uh, what are you now, 30? Uh, 40. <laughs> <laughs> so you've been in it for a while. Um, and then I want to talk to you about um, the God Outfit Association and your role in there and what that is. But I think just to give everybody a little bit of um, context, if I asked you what you did for a living, what would you say? I'm an outfitter. You're an outfitter? Yeah. And what does that mean on a day-to-day basis for you? That means we do pretty much anything and everything that there is. Yeah, okay. From farming to flying and yeah. hunting. But it all revolves around taking, taking people hunters. to the mountains. And you said you started wrangling when you were 12. Was your old man, Kevin, always an outfitter? No, he wasn't. He uh, started outfitting when I was about 12 years old and moved up. He went from estate planning yeah. into the outfitting business and wanted to make sure that there was a place for his grandchildren to hunt yeah. when they got old enough to start. Old enough. He's got plenty of those now. How many you got? How many kids yeah, have you got? I've got five. He's got... Yeah. Uh, Nathan's got two. Yeah, he has 12 total now. Wow. Yeah. yeah well, so Nathan's got three. Three he just, now. just added Oh, of course he baby. did. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Dallas, so. No, that's, um, that's a full household. Mm-hmm. And they're all, from what I can tell, like your daughter's here. She's involved in the industry. Um, is she your eldest? Yeah, she's our oldest. She guides for us. She's been guiding since she was, well, she started four, uh, 14 years old when she started wrangling. Yeah. Yeah. That's she's, awesome. And she's, uh, I see her more and more now. Posing with big animals. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that transition's Jeez. happened. It's gone from being obviously a, a learner side of things to you bet. being last, one of the... Last five, six years, she's been guiding quite a bit. Yeah. She's been guiding sheep for us for the last four years. Yeah. Doing a really good job. Really proud of her. She's, yeah. a, she's a heck of a girl. Getting more and more involved in the industry. She's third generation now. Yeah. And it's, it's cool from my perspective to see, because, I mean, obviously we have girls come through the, um, the Ultimate OE program. And, you know, when we started this 10 years ago, it was hard to find somewhere to send them, if I'm honest, um, because people were not, as a general, as an industry, we weren't that open to the idea of, you know, girls being guides in the mountains. But there are a few outfits, yours included, that have sort of taken, you know, that and changed it, turned it around. It's becoming more and more common and yeah. more and more accepted, which for me is awesome. And yeah. I, I know we sent you... Um, Jess, that was what, two years ago? Yeah. She's still working for you. Yeah, and she's awesome, and she's been she's been great. We really enjoyed having her out there. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's only a two-year visa because we keep her as long <laughs> as we possibly could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the biggest complaint we get. We can only keep them for two years, but yep. at the same time. But um, the the girls' role in this in this industry is, has grown a lot over the last, like you say, 10 years or so. Yeah. Um, you know, 16, 17 years ago, we had... Uh, one of our first female guides that came and, and started working with us. And yeah. 
and she was absolutely wonderful and you know most of them are tougher than any of the guys yeah absolutely yeah, you know and and do an absolute wonderful job they love the outdoors just as much as any guy out there yeah and of course me having five girls that uh a good incentive <laughs> to, to push them towards it yeah absolutely if you, all girls all girls oh sure yeah. i didn't know that that's yeah. that's a good effort that would explain a few things, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> the gray hair, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you grew up outfitting, started wrangling when you were 12. So, I mean, that's, you literally have been doing it your whole life. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, 12 years old when I got out of high school, started learning to fly. Yeah. Um, well, you spent, started flying at that point, too? Yeah, shortly after high school. I did a couple of years of college and yeah. then got into flying and fell in love with it. Um, trying to figure out how I was going to make a career in flying. Um, took a couple of years off from the outfitting. And, yeah. Uh, decided to come back up and fly for dad for a year or two to, while I kind of figured things out and uh, fell back in love with outfitting and, yeah. and hunting and, and what I'd grown up doing. Well, I mean, if you're passionate about the flying and you're passionate about the hunting, it's a pretty, you, know, you can't really get a better job, can you? No. It, it puts the, the two of them together and, it, and you know, I mean, the, the one thing I'm most passionate about is family and it. It allows us to spend a lot of time with our family. Yeah, it's an awesome you know, lifestyle. It really is. You know, the kids come out to the mountains with us. They've grown up doing this and literally grown up doing it. Yeah. Most of them have been in the mountains since they were one, or two, one or two months old. Yeah. You know, um, Brandy had come out to have babies and yeah. go back to the mountains as soon well, as the doctor let her out. <laughs> complaining yesterday that she she loves being pregnant and love having kids, but she <laughs> had, to, had to put a stop on it because five's enough. Uh, I thought, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, yeah, I'm sure probably <laughs> sure I'll agree with you on that one. Yeah, uh, you just have to keep her away from all the adoption agencies. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, we <laughs> almost brought almost brought one back from Spain last year. So, <laughs> yeah, there's your that's a that's a risk. That's mm-hmm. a key risk. Tell me about your plane. What kind of plane do you have? Oh, uh, we've got a, a small air charter company, so we've got four planes. Oh, have you? Yeah. Cool. So we've got everything from Super Cub to a Beaver, and we've got a 185 and a 206 in the middle nice. there. So you get to bounce around between them, or do you have a favorite? You, uh, you know, I, I probably spend the most amount of time in the Super Cub and the Beaver. Yeah. Um, but I, I, it's pretty spread out between them. They're all within 50 hours of each other right. all year long. Uh, Nathan started flying now. Oh, I didn't know so, that. Yeah, so he's been doing a lot of time in the 206. I excuse the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah that's cool so, i didn't realize he was flying out that's awesome yeah so um that's i didn't realize you like a lot of guys get into outfitting and then the flying is a a secondary thing they get into like nathan would be a good example of that yeah. i guess whereas i didn't realize you were into your flying before you got into the outfit oh, stuff yeah that's cool yeah so i mean we i started the air charter company before i really got involved with the management side of of the outfitting yeah. And so their charter is still going. We fly for just about every outfitter from the Wilson or the Peace Arm on the Wilson Lake all the way up into the Yukon. Yeah. So, so. you know the country pretty well. Yeah. That's awesome. I, uh, I always look at old, you're not, you know, Bill that flies for Darwin and Wendy. Mm-hmm. And he kind of leans on the window as he's flying with one hand. I'm always wondering, like, is he sleeping? <laughs> or is he just looking for moose? He's looking for moose. Or is he memorizing every lake? river tree like is that what he's doing is he like imprinting his brain and he flies like 
100 yards over every time he does the same flight, so he's got a complete and utter mental map in case if he gets lost. Like, it, I literally sit there for an hour trying to figure out what exactly he's looking at. And it really might be a little bit of all. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a little bit of sleeping a little going bit on. Of you're definitely yeah. looking for moose. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Thanks for always, giggle. you know, as, as hunters and, you know, growing up hunting, when you're flying, it's just as exciting to see an animal from the air as it is to see them from from the ground when you're riding a horse so yeah no kidding wow. yeah even though that when you spot a moose out of a plane and you're still 300 miles from camp it's not going to do you much good no but it's still fun <laughs> it's especially still if fun you see, see a, a really big moose and yeah big set of plywood <laughs> down the bottom yeah no it is cool the um i guess one thing i've always been sort of intrigued with is myself included and a bunch of the guys that i know and and, and spend time with we were we were always recreational hunters before we moved into the professional side of things. And there's not too many people in New Zealand who were born into the professional industry first before they were recreational hunters. So do you hunt recreationally or has it always been oh, yeah. a job for you? No, I hunt recreationally as well. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, Dad was a, a big hunter. I mean, we were, right. he would go to Colorado every year for elk hunting and he'd go deer hunting around the ranch you know we, we grew up in central california right. those first few years and uh and he'd take us hunting i mean we hunted everything from squirrels and, right and songbirds so it's always to, been in the blood yeah always well, been yeah. A, a thing yeah do you get to recreationally hunt much now not a lot i do try to take the time to go hunting with the kids right uh, that to me is more exciting than anything else and and now and brandy's really started hunting so i try to do a lot of hunting with her as well that's awesome do you, you've got any international stuff right? yeah a um, little bit not a lot uh last year brandy and i both went and, and shot the grados ibex in spain nice. and so that was good a lot of choice. fun good yeah. choice um, good i had wine. done the a while before yeah you know it's a great hunt for for somebody who's just starting out in the in the hunting world yeah great accommodations great food great management really good management i mean the the numbers are there and and it's really not a a super physically difficult hunt there's not a lot of most s- of the time yeah you still got to climb like felipe decided that we we're gonna you know go work for ours oh, but yeah. you're an outfitter yeah. you will climb. Yeah. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. but, and then she she got to go we went to argentina last may and so she shot a black buck as well nice and that was a, Again, a lot of good fun. choice. Yeah. I'm, se- I'm sensing a theme. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, yeah. se- I'm, I'm picking up Brandy's influence on these hunts. I can, <laughs> I can see it. <laughs> um, so before we get into the, the, I don't want to call it the boring stuff because I genuinely <laughs> think it's interesting, but um, before we get into the, the, um, the association stuff, just I thought I'd prompt you with a few story prompts and I know that you took a photo of my notes yesterday so I'm thinking that you uh, have <laughs> got a few prep stories. I, I didn't actually even look at them just, other than I just scrolled through them real fast. Yeah, so. it made sure there was no horrible questions in there. Yeah. So, I mean, knowing what you've done and your experiences over the years, what would be the worst experience you've ever had with a horse? You know, I, I did actually look at that one and I thought about it and I'm like, you know, in the worst experience, I love horses. So, I... I you know, as a child, I, I trained horses all through high school and college. I was training horses yeah. um, for pleasure, for rodeo, for all different things. And I've never, the only bad experiences I've had with horses are where is, is because a horse got hurt. Yeah, yeah. I, I absolutely love them, you know, and, and probably the most terrifying was to see one of my pack horses rolling down a mountain, right? Yeah. I've um, always 
had fear of being involved, like it happens, right? Mm -hmm. And like the guys that we send over come back with the odd story that makes you sort of skin crawl and like losing them down a river or, you know, that kind of thing. It sounds... I think I had one of your guys actually tell me he, he gave up at one point because he never never thought that he could be in the situation that he was in right. with a horse. And it was the same type of thing. Yeah. Lost its footing. It was down the hill. It was around a tree. It was, yeah. you know, and it was the whole, he, he was actually a veterinarian. And so obviously yeah. somebody who was very passionate about uh, animal welfare. Uh, animal welfare. Yeah. And so same type of thing. It, it wasn't so much his, his fear, but his yeah. fear for the horse. Yeah. Because they are, they're, they're not only our tools, they're, they're a companion while you're out yeah, there. Yeah. You right? get seriously attached to them. <laughs> Very. Particularly if you're there for a while on your own, you start uh, start talking to them, and when they start answering back, that's when you, <laughs> that's that's time, when to, you know, time to go back to town for <laughs> yeah, a little that's bit. When you get a call, Sean, and say, "Look, man, I think I might have been in here for five minutes too long. You better come get me. I'm talking back to the horses." Um, yeah, I, I can relate because I mean, the horses are a massive part of your business, aren't they? They are. Yeah, they're you know everything we do is horseback. We do the odd backpack hunt, but I'd say 97, 98% of it is all yes. done on horseback. horseback. Yeah. So, you know, I fly them in, and then they go from there, and you're six to eight hours You don't day. fly the horses in, do you? No, I fly the, the hunters <laughs> in. <laughs> the hunters in. The, the yeah. guides trail in, and, yeah, yeah. and for 100 days straight, they're with those horses, and each each guide's got his string of six horses. How many you got? Uh, right now we got about 170, 175. At one point we had 350. Ed. Holy shit, that's uh, a lot of mouths to feed. Yeah, like people don't understand the logistics and the cost involved with looking after 300 horses. I can't even imagine. A lot of people forget that you know, even after the season, you still have you to still got to feed the buggers. You bet, and make sure yeah. that they're happy. And because if they, you bet. back you then know, we were going through 35 tons of hay every. 24 hours <laughs> that's ridiculous I mean and people it's really important that pre-season or going into the season they're in really good shape because mm-hmm. we ask them to do a lot when we're hunting with them because yes. we're you know we're riding them some of them all day you know and they're not getting to feed during the day we let them loose during the night and they feed and they but it's you know, that window becomes smaller and smaller and they do, you know, they lose condition over a period of time. And then when we're done in the mountains, you've got to make sure you're looking after them because then they've got to get through a, what generally speaking is not a real pleasant winter. Yeah. Um, so, wow, I don't know you had that many. So you're down to 130-ish. Uh, 160 to 170. Holy smokes. That's a lot of horses. Mm-hmm. Um, most memorable experience as a bush pilot. Just for everybody listening, the brand of flying that Sean does and his colleagues in the mountains is, um, I guess we can relate to it in some level in New Zealand. Like the helicopter pilots fly in similar conditions at times, but what we is very different is the scale of the country that you guys are flying around in. Like it's just so big, it's it blows my mind. Yeah. Um, so being a bush pilot is is different. Yeah, no, you're not. It, there's no set. Open the book, figure out the numbers, and the airplane's going to do this. Ninety yeah. percent um, of what we're doing is judgment calls, right? And which is which is the one thing that's kept the air charter company from growing is how do you teach somebody to make the same judgment call that you're going to make every time? Yeah. You, you can't. That's just something that you either 
you either do or you don't. <laughs> and it's not like you're risking scratching up the back of your truck. No. It's it's a like when things go wrong, you know, in the mountains in general, it's amplified by the by the remoteness. But yeah. when you add an aeroplane into the mix, there's all kinds of amplification involved in it. Yeah, and you know, I, I saw the question about the most memorable and you know there's there's been a lot of different uh, i'd say you know hair raising and uh, uh nerve-wracking times mm-hmm. but probably some of the most memorable ones are those ones that there is nothing goes wrong right and it's a beautiful morning and you're flying along it you know a few hundred feet and you can see elk and you can see moose and you can see wolves and and grizzly bears and and it's just smooth and it's yeah. nice and cold typically in the winter yeah those are those are probably the most memorable times nice. that when you that get up I in the air and you think damn well. this is cool yeah. yeah and you got you know i and in my in my entire career probably it was it was the during some of my training in california right i had uh i had been pushing really hard to try to get everything done i had about Ten and a half months to to finish to go from basically I had never fully operated an airplane by myself to being a commercial pilot and, right. and at that time because not knowing which where I was going to go I was going through the full commercial IFR the whole world. multi and uh, after I'd just been really pushing I'd probably been flying for fifteen days straight all day every day if I wasn't there I was, I was sitting in the lounge studying and, and working on the test and all of a sudden one day. I was out flying and I thought, I'm flying an airplane. Yeah. This is really cool. Yeah. And, you know, it was it was that realization that, hey, there's nobody else in here with me and there's nobody yeah. telling me what to do. I'm, I'm actually flying. I could go wherever I want. Yeah. yeah. That must be an awesome feeling. It really was. Yeah. I've always looked at the, um, the flying stuff and, and being a pilot with a healthy amount of respect and... I guess a little bit like I would love to be able to fly I think it would be a really cool thing but I'm also honest enough with myself to know that my personality probably doesn't lead myself to being a pilot like I um, I get to I take risks sometimes that I can get away with if I'm jumping over a creek right Mm -hmm. It scares me to think that potentially if I was flying that I might push that envelope a little bit too far. And the guys that have been in the industry a long time, like we've done obviously done a lot of flying with Darwin Carey and Bill and those guys, they are very calculated with when they do and they don't fly and what they do and they don't do. And I think that's something that's super important as a bush pilot is you've got to be so disciplined about knowing when you need to push the envelope and when to just fucking leave it sitting on the lake. Yeah. It's extremely exaggerated as a as a bush pilot because it's there there's gonna be times that that there's gonna be things go wrong yeah. that you can't control. And there's only a few things that we can't control and one of them is when we go and when we don't go. Yeah. And you know, as a as a younger pilot when I was, you know, twenty one, twenty two years old and you're flying guys that are very successful in their late fifties and yeah. they've gotten when they say go, people go. Yeah, and yeah, they're used to that feeling. It, it took a long time to learn how do you say no. Yeah. 
you know, and I'm I'm pretty good at it now at, at 40. Keys yeah. are in the plane. You want to go, go. Yeah. I'm going to have another cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah. And most of them don't go. No, I, I'm not surprised. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, if your pilot says, I don't think we should go, you have to be a special kind of arrogant to say, I think we should go. Yeah. Like, I, it's it's out there. But I mean, of the, of the hundreds of clients that, that I've flown, I've had one that, really? that didn't did not understand it. Uh, he was stuck for six days. I mean, so yes, there was a, a whole bunch more to it because he was stuck on the other side of the divide. So some you know some days it would be sunny where he was, but we couldn't fly. Yeah, that's <laughs> got to be the hardest thing for an, a guide or anybody that's trying to explain. Like you'll be sitting on a lake and it'll be blue, bluebird sky and awesome flying conditions, and you'll be telling them that they can't fly because of weather. You know they'll be socked in down low, right? Yeah. And you can get away with that for a couple of times, but if it's you know becomes days like people get antsy and there's yeah. sitting for sitting in a there's a one of the lakes we hunt at scoop lake there's a writing there's a, a um, pencil message on the wall from like 1974 and it says still waiting for a plane still snowing in 1974 and i i look at that and i think you know what nothing has changed like this yeah. you know not only are they still waiting for the plane they're probably still waiting for the same Plane, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it was probably a or a BB they were waiting for. Him. Could even be the good actual same, physically same plane. Like they've been around for so long. Exactly. So that's a good humbler. And I, I had a client a couple of years ago that was there and getting a little bit antsy. And I said, "Look, you need to go into the corner over there and just read that little message and come back and tell me what it says." And he was like, "I'm not the first guy to be getting getting cabin fever, am I?" I'm like, "No, man, you got to relax. Exactly. <laughs> He'll come when he comes, and there's not much we can do about it." If you want to start working, walking, you should be there in about eight, nine days if you hustle. Yeah, there's a good chance yeah. it'll clear off before that. Yeah, I, I guarantee <laughs> at some point a plane's going to fly over your head and you're going to reconsider the decisions you've made. Yeah. Um, that's cool, man. I, I've i never had the pleasure of flying with you, which is actually cool. relatively surprising. It is. How many different pilots have flying with over years up there. That, how many different outfits I fly for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, oh, one day there's always a first for everything. Yep. Um. <laughs> uh, but, but you've been been around Darwin for quite a while, so yeah, I've he, been around Darwin for a while, and, and he does all of his flying. So yeah, I guess his a similar business, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, no, I mean Darwin share a lot of stories, and and uh, it's yeah. nice to have a cup of coffee with him. He's been around it for an extra twenty years for me. And He's done a lot, and I, I tell you what, there's nothing that's more comforting than a pilot that's been doing it for 40 years yeah you, you tend to you know you know you jump into a, a a plane or a helicopter with a guy that's you know 21 and got plenty to prove it's you know it's not not the best feeling in the world like you got to trust them at that point it's no different from getting on a commercial wheel line like once you get inside and the door closes then you're saying you know what I trust you to get me from here to there yeah at that point, I mean, no matter how intently I watch the pilots and you're twizzling your bloody wheels and pulling your levers and pushing your buttons, like I <laughs> still can't figure out what you're doing ninety percent of the time. So if you if you somehow vanished out of the cockpit, I'm ninety nine percent sure. Most of the time, we're just trying to look busy. Yeah, I'm ninety nine percent sure I'd be a smoking hole on the side of a mountain somewhere <laughs> if, if the pilot were to disappear on me. Um, do you remember that guy that used to fly for uh, Black Sheep? I used to call him Father Christmas. Um, uh, what was his name? 
that bugger, he used to fall asleep all the time. And he, he, he wasn't the picture of health. And it used to make me really nervous because I was convinced he was either he was going to fall asleep and not wake up one day. <laughs> and we are flying along. And it was relatively early in my bush flying career. And we are flying along in the beaver and he, he was asleep. And he fucking ran out of fuel. Like, the, just plane died. And it's quite airy when you're listening to a beaver, which is a very loud, dominating, powerful engine, suddenly just go tink, 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 and all you can hear is air. And he sort of wakes up and looks around, not even mildly concerned, thinks, oh, shit, and he pushes the little button and pumps a bit of fuel over from the other wing and does some things and fires it up. You know, we didn't hardly even lost any altitude, and he sort of looks out both sides, looks in the back, and sort of gives everybody the thumbs up. Within five minutes, he was asleep again. <laughs> Just unbelievably relaxed. <laughs> Not something you want to be... Anyway, he no That's longer it. flies, if anyone's concerned. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he retired. Uh, you don't want to be a nervous flyer. No. If you're going to do this type of flying. No. No. I, uh, and it's, it's funny how quickly... I'll tell you what. These inreaches, and we could oh. talk about them all day, they've made things... A, more safer in a number of ways, but B, have messed things up, particularly for the young fellas. Well, not even that. The guides in camp, they're like, oh, no, like 65-year-old guides that are like 15-year-old girls texting their friends in camp. Like, it's taken away from the whole experience. But I was flying with Derek, I mean, two years ago, and there was another pilot in the mountains, Joel's uncle, and and another guy involved, and they were texting each other. And for whatever reason... They got their wires crossed, right? And the message that Derek got in his head was it was clear we're good to go. And the message they thought they'd sent was not that. So he wasn't doing, he's not doing a hell of a lot of flying. But he, you know, me and him know each other. I flew with him. He goes, you know what, Matt, come on, jump in. Well, I'll take you. So we get in his um, plane and we take off and we're flying along. And he's starting to look out the window and thinking this is not quite right. And got about you know 45 minutes of the flight and realized like it was totally socked in there was not like there was no holes and once you get up above the clouds like it's i mean you know obviously but for everybody's listening like if you can't see the ground you can't land like it's no like they've got fancy gear in those but they've got a gps so they sort of got a general idea where the lake is but it's a, a horrible feeling to not have any windows and we were we ended up you know hundreds of kilometres into the NWT before we found a hole that we could get in under and onto a lake. And we spent the best part of the day there. It's not a good feeling. Yeah. Yeah. No, they are. The inreaches are one of the best things that we've had come out between those and the spots. It's nice to be able to have the the two-way communication. Sometimes I like the spots better because there isn't a two-way communication and you just simply know that somebody's okay. Yeah. And um, that's what we actually use with most of our guides, a lot of them have started carrying the inreaches now because they like to be able to text their girlfriend or, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that type of stuff. But then that creates a whole nother problem. Yeah, it's funny how it's changed the industry. I mean, when I first started, you know, obviously you'd had a more extensive career at that stage than I had. But I still remember when I first started, like, sat phones were around, but they were big, they were clunky, and they're, they're really expensive to use, and not everybody had one. So when I first started guiding in Canada, my entire um, communication with home or, you know, was every so often I'd get a client that bought a sat phone that if you did a good job would lend you five minutes at the end of the hunt to call mum and dad and say you're alive. 
Yep. That was the full extent of the contact. So when you were in the bush, you were in the bush. Yep. And then as time goes on, all clients had sat phones. And as soon as they got their animal, they would call home and they switched off. So what was normally a 10, 14-day hunt, you know, as the guys would come in, if you got your animal early, they, they leave. Yep. They don't. They can't switch off for the full period of time. They can't bear to be away from home or, you know, the wife's calling or the business needs this attention or, you know, the kid's sick or something like that. It's, yep. it's affected the industry on a, so many different levels. It definitely has. I mean, when I started, we, we didn't have cell phones at all. We had radio, uh, two-way radios. The old mountain so, radio, 375. Yeah. Well, so we would we'd actually climb a mile up the mountain. We oh, had a really? coaxial antenna run to the top of a pine tree. Yeah. you carry a car battery and your radio with you, and you go up there and you click the mic twice, and then the operator would come on, and you give them your phone number and tell them what phone number you wanted to call, and they would dispatch it through. Right. And you'd sit underneath the tree and, and make your phone call. So whether it was an emergency or... You know, if you'd been out there for three months and you wanted to touch base with, with somebody, that was that, that was, was the only way you could talk. And we got our first sat phone. It came in a briefcase that was, you know, two and a half feet by two feet. <laughs> and, you know, it was 10 inches deep. Yeah. And it had a, a half a second delay on it. Yeah. So you would call, and nobody understood having that delay. They, yeah. they couldn't wait and not talk over the top of you. Yeah. And it, and and it cuts you off. Yeah, so my, and that was that would have been when I was just coming into high school. So, yeah. my my football coach uh, and uh, until he uh, retired, he was always talking about this. You know, this kid that we he went to Canada for the summers to to work up there, and he was going to be late getting down to practice. And so yeah. he, he was had had so much desire to play that he called me called me from the sat phone. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't understand a word you were saying, but it showed intent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, man, it has changed. And now, like you say, with the inreaches, you buy an unlimited plan and you can you'll be getting texts from your girlfriend asking what brand of milk you should normally buy from the dairy, which when you're in the mountains guiding, hunting, that that kind of stuff fills space in your brain that you don't really need it to be filled by that kind of stuff. Yeah. A few years ago, that was I was explaining that to some of the younger guys that what I love about guiding still is that when my ass hits that saddle yeah. and I go outside the, the away from camp, I don't have a phone ringing. I don't. I'm not worried about what's going on in the other camps. I'm not worried about what's happening at home. There's only one thing that matters, and we're going hunting. Yeah. Going hunting. What's the weather doing? And what times it get dark? That's it. And it's 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 so liberating as a human to in this day and age, it's amazing how much space all that stuff takes up in your mind and you don't realise. When you can let it go and you're not worried about it and it's not occupying that part of space, it's amazing how the level of clarity you get. Like it's easy to make decisions, it's easy to process, you know, you know, big life decisions, it's yep. easy to come up with ideas, you're, you're more creative, you're more relaxed you sleep better it's all that stuff just comes off like a well you're in touch with who we really are yeah exactly. you really are and where we come from yeah yeah, so. yeah cool i like that all right tell me what the goabc is the guide so, outfitters association of british columbia so the guide Outfitters association of british columbia founded in 1966 i believe it was um one of the longest oldest guide outfitting associations um, I'm the president have been for the last two years 
we advocate for wildlife and guide outfitting in British Columbia. Um, we're, we do a lot of different things on, on the world stage, but our focus is the British Columbia guide outfitting industry and, and what we can do to, to better it, to keep it around for longer, uh, relationships that we can build with, with other guide outfitting associations and, uh, you know, we're, we're basically an advocacy, advocacy group. Yeah. And all outfitters in British Columbia are part of the association? No. It's voluntary membership. Yeah. Um, so there's approximately 230 to 250 um, guide outfitters in British Columbia. Our membership is around 180. Yeah. Um, it's not it a bad. stays right around there. And with a voluntary membership, it's, it's extremely high. Right. Uh, there's a few provinces and a few states that have mandatory membership uh, where they're 100%. But I would say if you took all the, all the voluntary memberships, it's probably one of the highest nice. membership rates. Cool. So advocating for guide outfitters, but you also said wildlife. So you obviously you've got a pretty strong focus on the conservation side of things. I mean, for us, it's obvious without a strong wildlife population and a healthy wildlife population there is no guide outfitting that makes a lot of sense to us but can you speak to that the wildlife side of things for those who perhaps don't understand that side of things you bet so i mean guide outfitters as a general rule are probably some of the the closest to being the 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 greenest people you're gonna find right i mean they're you know we use horses and we put the least amount of footprint on the on the ground that we possibly can our lives depend on wildlife being there. And yeah. so whether whether you, you just love wildlife and you love habitat and, and the way that the entire biodiversity works together or you're just in it for your life, for your livelihood, yeah, you still depend on it. And so it's, it's something that these guys as guide outfitters, we're on the ground, we see what's happening, we're the first line of defense for them. We know when the populations are starting to go down. We know when they're rebounding. We know what's happening there, and we see what it is. And it was the it was the guide outfitters, you know, in the in the late '60s and early '70s that they realized that you know, hey, lightning had struck over here, and and it and it burnt off that hillside, and all of a sudden the elk are doing great mm-hmm. over there. And they said, you know, if we if we go out at the right time of year and we burn a little spot over here and a spot over there. You know, we can create the habitat for these, and, and they're the ones that, that were first out there managing the land to to make it be able to carry more wildlife. Yeah, and it's because they love them. I mean, they, you know, it's it's there's lots of times that you hear guys joking about outfitters when they retire, they become greenies. Yeah, because we love we love the animals that we hunt. We really do. I mean, um, none of us want to see any animal expropriated. Yeah, and I think it's a really important point is that, you know, and it's, I had a conversation with Alex yesterday who's in Namibia, and it's exactly the same for all of us all around the world. That the primary number one focus is healthy populations of sustainable, you know, well-managed animals. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the people who are anti-hunting miss that entirely. They think that we're all out there to hunt them off the face of the earth, which makes zero sense like just if you're talking from a pure practical point of view it makes very little sense um so the foundation itself sort of covered the function and the purpose 
what have you learned sort of so, as an organisation sort of over the last that period of time like what is yeah probably one of the biggest things that we've learned in the recent years is that we've got to be out and educate the people that aren't in involved with the industry that aren't hunters we have a uh, 70% of the of the population that they don't hunt they aren't passionate about hunting and and what we do they don't understand it but they aren't against it either right. and they don't understand what's, what's happening and we as as hunters and outdoorsmen typically don't um, we aren't techies yeah we we aren't sitting behind a computer yeah. and that's the new form of communication today and so we were quite a bit behind the eight ball on getting the message out there as to how much we care about these animals and how much we're actually doing for the animals and, and managing the populations and trying to help. Yeah. And unfortunately, we let somebody else tell our story. Yeah. And it's going to take us a long time to be able to untell a false story that's been, been told in the public eye. It's a, a real thing. And I like what you said. We let somebody else tell the story of who we are as hunters yeah. and we were too busy hunting, hunting. <laughs> you know and quite happy doing what we were doing and thinking that everybody got it turns out that they don't they don't at all and yeah. you know it's uh, most of the people in the in the hunting industry know what's happened with the grizzly bears over the last few years in yeah. 2017 it was completely closed in british columbia and a political decision that was made um based on the feelings of people who live in Vancouver. Exactly. People who didn't understand what's happening out there and, and quite frankly, probably don't want to understand. Yeah. They, they, they have a day-to-day life that they do, that they see what's happening. There aren't grizzly bears in their backyard, so there might, might not be grizzly bears anywhere. If somebody says there's no grizzly bears, then there must not be any. Yeah. Even though we have the science and, and everything else, which was very unfortunate to see that happen. And, and there was a picture that was painted by those who were against hunting and it was this picture of these great majestic animals with their heads and their paws cut off and their corpses rotting out in the bush yeah and they did a really really good job of painting that picture um today now that's exactly what's happened yeah because it's been shut down because when we were hunting them they were harvested the the hides went to use the the majority of the meat was brought out so the guys could consume it you know the the entire bear was being used yeah, they had a value they had a and they had a great value they brought you know an economic value as well to to the province and now that they aren't it's against the law to own any part of the bear mm-hmm. so you know just from my own personal experience just in the last couple of years last year we had to we had to put down two bears yeah because they were threatening human life and you know, they made choices at that point. Yeah. And so because you can't possess any of the bear, you call the CO service up and say, what do you want us to do with it? Well, bring the skull in, leave the rest of it. It's just such a so, waste. So there truly is a rotting corpse out there because yeah. they shut down the grizzly bear hunting. It's, it's, it's really sick because the biggest misperception and you're right like if somebody in Vancouver tells somebody else in Vancouver that the grizzly bears are endangered like they're going to believe it they'll take it at face value mm-hmm. the reality is there's probably more bears now than there have been for 100 
years. There's no question. Because we're managing our game so well, and we were managing the grizzly bears so well, that the population was big, healthy, well-fed. You know, their um, fecundity level was high because yep. we were taking out the, the older, mature boars who all they eat in the springtime is baby grizzly bears. Like, exactly. it, a lot of people don't realise that. Their biggest predator is other bears. So, yep. And it's the big old males who do that. So a, a hunted grizzly bear population actually is more productive and more of them than a non-hunted grizzly bear population. Exactly. Which, and the other thing that the guide outfitting did being able to legally hunt the bears that were already naturally pertained to be less frightened by human contact or more likely to um, be aggressive. They're the ones, the first ones that got harvested legally and utilised. Therefore, there were less person bear issues. Now, as soon as you take the grizzly bear hunting away, those bears are not being harvested but they are still being shot because they're still chasing people around. So you haven't actually changed anything. It's just made made them feel better about we've saved the grizzly bears by stopping the big bag trophy hunters. Which exactly, they stopped somebody from taking a picture with the bear yep. after it was after it was killed, which instead of just not taking it. a picture and leaving it, dumping it in a landfill. Yeah. Which is really sad. It is very sad. Um, I guess it's a good way to. Um, transition to you guys ran a campaign uh, the GIABC called the Who Cares campaign can you just give me a, um, a rundown on what that was and why so the Who, Who Cares campaign is a, is a long term campaign Okay, this will be ongoing for in my mind it's 30 plus years Okay, um, people ask me you know, how do you, how do you measure whether or not it was successful I say if my grandkids are still hunting then it right. was successful because what it is is trying to tell exactly the story that we've just been talking about. It's telling the story of why we do what we do. Mm-hmm. It's it's about the the female hunters. It's about the First Nations. It's about the the different demographics that all come together for one reason or another. And, and in the in the end of it is the three C's. It's conservation, con- um, consuming, yeah. And community, yeah. and it's bringing the economic value to the comu- community and the spiritual value to the community of being back on the land. It's consuming the entire animal, and it's, and it's conserving and raising a better population of wild animals. Making sure that it's there for the future generations to have. And so, they're, at this point, it's they're, they're short clips that with interviews with different people from all different spectrums all across British Columbia. And it is to, to begin to educate that 70% in the middle of what we actually do and try to tell our story. Yeah, and it's important to note, too, that that 70% are not anti-hunters. Yes. They're non-hunters. So I like the idea of that long-term campaign to slowly try and pull back the ground that we've lost over the last 30 years, mm-hmm. where the trophy hunter has become the villain, the painted as a, an evil, um, bloodthirsty, ego-driven idiot yep. um, and bring it back and showing that the majority of hunters are like you and I and everybody else who hunts who are in it for the right reasons mm-hmm. and we are aligned with 
that 70%, probably within 95% of our common goals. Do you want to see animals, more animals? Yes. Do you want the population to be happy? Yes. Do you want to see animals suffer? No. You know, all that stuff is common ground. Yep. No. And that's exactly what the Who Cares campaign is about. Who cares about the wildlife? Yeah. Well, typically it's the hunters that do care. Yeah, it's people that are around the wildlife. Yep. That love it, that make their living off of it, that have formed their entire lives around being out with the wildlife. And I think we can learn a lot from you guys as Kiwis because we are, we still have a lot more connections with hunting. Like, you know, you guys have a huge urbanised population that have probably been separated from hunting for one or two generations now. In New Zealand, we're still in the pace where we somebody knows somebody who hunts or somebody's brother hunts or somebody knows someone who lives on a farm who hunts so there's still a little bit of a connection so I I really feel like there's lessons to be learned that if you look at British Columbia you know that 30 last 30 years where hunters were just away doing our own thing and those people in Vancouver can do their own thing and we won't bother them they won't bother us yeah how wrong were we like that's the reality of it yeah and now we're playing catch up in North America big time and we've already lost a bunch of those battles, and we've probably got another whole bunch of battles that are coming in the near future on picking. And we do. And the more urbanized it gets, the more we're going to have those. Yeah. And it's, yeah, like I say, there are a lot of lessons that we can learn there um, as hunters and as New Zealanders, and to, to look at that and understand what we can do now that's, that helps. Um, and I was talking to a guy yesterday on another podcast and his big bit of advice was like take somebody hunting but his punchline was not your son, not your nephew, not your daughter, take somebody hunting who doesn't have access to it, yep. like that's not going to get the opportunity otherwise and show them Exactly. even if they don't become a hunter it helps them to understand the why of what we do and the reality and how connected we are to the wildlife and the environment. Yeah, they're going to see the spiritual connection that they have. They're going to, they're going to understand what it is that draws us out to the wild. Yeah. You know, it's and share the meat. Yeah. You know, that's that is one of the things that that hunters are very giving, yeah. and when we give that little bit of organic, yeah. no antibiotic. Um, wildly raised yeah. meat to as somebody else's. It could possibly be until your lights went out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I mean, those, you, you hand that to somebody and you give them a roast and they they find out that this is what meat actually tastes like yeah. when it's not raised in a pen. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a really important message. And, you know, as the show's starting to get a little bit more busy now, I think it's a good natural place to, to give off and let you... Um, help your wonderful family, your wife and daughter have arrived, they're setting up the bar. It's worth mentioning, we're in the Prophet Musqua booth right now, and they have the coolest booth <laughs> at the show, I think. It's, Thank uh, you. It's walled off, they've got couches at both ends for you know pulling people from the aisles, but inside where we are, the inner sanctum is set up as a full bar. It's quite special, and I Thank know you. there's been a number of Ultimate OE boys, myself included, that have... <laughs> probably taking a little bit too much <laughs> advantage of your generosity so on from behalf of me and behalf of all those guys thank you we do yeah. appreciate and it from profit yeah. muscle you guys are more than welcome it's yeah what it's here for thank you i appreciate a little it. bit of a reprieve 
Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time. We'll yep. knock that on the head, and uh, good luck with the rest of the day. You're going to come out for a beer tonight? Must be. Oh, yeah. Saturday, definitely. Uh, yeah. G'day. Thanks for listening to the Educated Hunter podcast. There are a number of ways you can connect with myself, Matthew Gibson, or my partner in crime, Curran Island, at The Educated Hunter. And the hub for all of this is our website, theeducatedhunter.com. Our Instagram page is at theeducatedhunter. Our website also has a spot where you can sign up for our newsletter that comes once every two weeks and is full of relevant information about hunting in New Zealand and around the world. And lastly, you can search out any of the episodes that we've done in the past and find the show notes on that episode. Other than that, thanks very much for listening and I hope you're having a good day wherever you are and your next hunting adventure is not too far away.